Richmond Stace. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm good, Cody. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. And Stephen Rolnick, how are you, sir? No, no. Greetings, Cody, from a wet and windy Wales, but I'm, I'm wrapped up warm. Well, we're in a wet and windy Toronto and uh, Richmond, I don't know, you're probably wet and windy as well somewhere in the UK. So I yep, think we're even. Yeah, oh, it is that. It's definitely wet and windy. Let's start with you, Richmond. We're going to talk about what lies beneath the surface. So for you, your expertise is in pain and you specialize in pain. And the work that you do is all around your know, prevention and treatment and education. And you do a fantastic job. I've been following you for a little while now and, and you just have this way of explaining it. So I'd love it if you could explain in, in your words, you know, at a basic level, what pain is and, and perhaps some of the common misconceptions around how we think about pain. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks for that very kind and generous intro. Um, yeah, as you know, from our, our chats, I've kind of made it one of my purposes is to help people understand pain. And the, the biggest problem really with, with pain is the fact that um, it, is, it is so misunderstood uh, right, across, right across society. And, and unfortunately, that can lead to various decisions being made which um, don't always result in, in the success or, or the people achieving the things that they, they want to. The, if I start with, with really what pain isn't, it's, it's really not a good indicator of, of tissue damage or, or pathology in the body or, or the state of structures that, that we might see either, either looking directly at our body or, or having some kind of scan or uh, x-ray, that, that kind of thing. Pain is just part of the way we protect ourselves. It's, uh, it's a survival mechanism. It's there really as um, something that, that we can consider a need state like hunger or thirst. But they're probably the, the easiest and most digestible ways of, of thinking about it as a start point for someone. But of course, um, we have to be aware that when we're introducing new ideas and concepts to, to people, they're coming with existing beliefs. And, and that's where the really interesting work lies. So they're, they're probably the main, the main features that I would start with someone. So it could be as simple as, you know, the way you've described it to me before, you know, like if I'm feeling pain in my foot, that is an indicator, but it might not necessarily be the actual thing that is in pain. For, you know, the way you described it to me was I'm actually in pain, not my foot. Yeah, uh, and that's absolutely right. It's it's the person that experiences pain, the whole person, not the foot. So say say my foot is painful, and I may have an injury. So so mm -hmm. we're not saying that, that there's there's absolutely no relationship at all. It's just it's it's not this direct relationship that we've all been brought up to to believe. So I might have pain in my foot right now, but if I look at it, I cannot see pain. You can't see it. Um, and you can't see it on any test. There's, there's nothing that shows pain. It's a subjective experience. It, it's like seeing funny. You know, I tell a joke to someone and they laugh. They may not, of course, but it's assuming they do laugh. You know, where, where is the funny? It's the person that finds it funny, not, not their chest or their mouth or, or anything else. And, and this is a really important part of, of working with, well, I think in, in all realms of health, actually, but, but obviously we're talking about pain. It's, it's the person's experience, their lived experience that we're, that we're looking to understand and help transform, but, but also to meet needs on, along the way. So 
as I said before, you know, I think you can consider pain to be a need state. It's there for a reason, even if it is persistent. We're going to come back to that, mate. That was brilliant. Uh, but Stephen, let's get you in here. You've spearheaded this work on motivational interviewing, which we're going to go pretty deep on during this chat. And it's got applications far and wide. I found you through sports, but I know, um, and I know you've done a bunch of work in sports, but it's, it's really come from other avenues. Explain to us kind of that basic concept around motivational interviewing and, and how it's helping to create change in us as individuals. Well, yeah, no, thank you very much, Cody. It's, it's funny listening to Richmond because I'm busy wondering what's the link between Richmond's, Richmond's discussion of pain and motivational interviewing. And I'm beginning to see them as he's talking. Um, I'm also aware, Richmond, that I'm having three teeth taken out in a couple of days. So I'm going to listen hard to, <laughs> hard to what you say, right? Okay, but let's not go there right now. Um, um, this stuff that I've been working on called motivational is about helping people to change. And uh, to cross over into Richmond's world, you could say it's about helping people deal with mental pain. So that's clearly one link. But the essence of it is that it's really difficult, if not impossible, to force people to do things. We, we, we can't create change in people, only they can. So the idea behind motivational interviewing is that we facilitate it. Mm -hmm. and of, of course, you can force people to do things, but that's not the kind of enjoyment and even artistry we strive for in sport and in life and in education um, and and really what if we want to try and help people change we want to help them feel safe enough and brave enough to express themselves to fail to be creative to learn about focus and discipline for themselves so it's a bit like growing a plant and uh, motivational interviewing is a, is a conversational style to help people say for themselves why and how they might change, supported by the advice and expertise that we might have, whatever the field involved. And if you like, you can think of it, you can think of it like this, guys. It's the polar opposite of you telling people why and how they should change, or the, or the polar opposite of you persuading them to change it's the reverse of that so the more safe they feel in a conversation and the more they hear themselves speak positively about change the better will be the outcomes mm -hmm. and what we've done over a period of 30 40 years in motivational interviewing is clarify exactly what we mean by that inside the conversation what is the style what, what are the skills that can be used? And measured off audio tapes, we can specify and define these skills and we find they predict better outcome. So motivational interviewing is a conversational style designed to help promote change in somebody whereby they say for themselves why and how they might change with you as a privileged, if you like, a privileged witness and guide in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. 
And like you said, at the outset of looking to pair you guys together, uh, it was going to be a challenge to, to pull these ideas together, but I've certainly set myself a challenge, but really where I think these two ideas come together is that a, there's really a misconception about everything that does lie beneath the surface with people. So when you're talking about pain, like you've just described to us, Richmond, often there's a lot of misconceptions and often there's just some really basic things that aren't necessarily the case, but they appear to be the case on the outside. And then similarly with this idea of motivational interviewing as someone who's worked in HR and recruiting for over a decade in the corporate world and also spends his time coaching football teams. This idea of really getting beneath the surface of what someone's telling you and and allowing them to guide themselves. uh, I think, uh, I think that's where those two kind of come together, but just to cross over those ideas, Richmond really what Stephen's getting at is um, you know, we often, or what his work uncovers is that we often try to, you know, insert information and advice onto others. Like he just described, it comes to that from that advice portion, which obviously creates resistance to behavior change. And we kind of get our, our hackles up and like, I'm not going to do that because you told me I'm going to do it because I want to, but it, it kind of leads to this misdiagnosis of what's actually going on, which I would imagine is kind of a systemic problem that you see in terms of pain and trying to diagnose pain. That, that fact that the, like the doctor, let's say, and again, I'm not slighting doctors, but just for the audience, the doctor kind of imposing what they think on the actual person themselves. And that leads to potential misdiagnosis. Yeah. So that, that's very much the model. Um, and, and, and certainly in, in physiotherapy and, and other therapies, there is that, that that sort of feeling the need to to fix someone we're trained to fix people and to to give them stuff to do give them exercises to do generally speaking and um, and i've always felt that's a very narrow approach and and you you do meet resistance often and you know resistance comes in in many forms um but but one of the most common is around the belief about what what pain is and what it's for and what that person's experience and of course they're the expert on that experience and I think that the the immediate connection between motivational interviewing and and, and pain coaching um, is well, first of all, it's things like empathy and and the deep listening and and the reflection um, and, and developing that rapport and creating that environment for things to to happen. Um, but there's there's a delicate balance because people also they they want stuff to do. Well, tell tell me, you know, some people will say, tell tell me what to do and I'll do it. That kind mm-hmm. of thing, very very passive. And of course, I encourage much more of an active role within you know that that whole relationship and what they're doing because this is what they need to do in their world. You know, what happens in the clinics like a bubble. Um, but from a coaching perspective, it's um, again, it's it's trying is, is getting them in to, to get into the right kind of state to be open to suggestions and ideas, but, but helping them to come up with it as much as possible through that, that dialogue that we, that we have. Maybe that creates a little bit more of a bridge over. Oh, I think it, I think it, 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 it really does. Your reference to the use of pain coaching makes me wonder what your conversations are like. And my suspicion is that the overlap between your 
conversations, Richmond, and what I would call a motivational interviewing session are probably substantial. And one of the most, one striking uh, observation is that you will see a pain patient as a person in the first instance. And you will, I guess, you tell me if I'm wrong, you will see this as a person in the first instance with some substantial strengths and aspirations and good qualities, not just as a patient with this or that problem, including pain. Absolutely. That is precisely the starting point. It's a foundation for motivational interviewing. Is, and, and that's whether you're in a, a sporting environment or in education or indeed in healthcare, it's a very substantial mindset shift for the practitioner, the coach, the teacher to see this as a young person who's striving to lead a better and happier life. Um, see them like that in the first instance. It's like wearing a different set of lenses over your eyes. Yeah, that's that's absolutely it. Um, and and the form of coaching that I I lean towards is the strengths based coaching, which is very much about that. And and um, having that conversation with that person about you know when do you feel at your best? You know when when do you feel in that state of flow and feel alive and, and feel great or you know whatever words seem appropriate with that particular person. And and sometimes they're surprised because you know we. I guess, you know, our, our society, we, we often look for the problems. And, and actually, as a, you know, with traditional training in healthcare, it is about looking for the problems. So it's been a very big shift for me over the years. Um, you know, very conscious shift, but also seeing the results of that shift that, that propel it onwards. Yeah, and, and, you know, this is where we started with motivational interviewing uh, quite a few decades ago, where we were like uh, pathology detectives, or if you like, deficit detectives. It's a phrase I use. <laughs> yeah. And we kind of were looking for problems. And of course, the logical consequence of wearing those lenses is that when you see a problem, well, because you come to this with a sense of compassion and wanting to help people, you then want to fix it for them. Yeah. In a way, it's quite understandable. It probably goes right back to our cave days. It's probably functional to fix problems for other people. However, when it comes to their own behavioral challenges in the case of motivational interviewing, it comes unstuck, that approach. And so that the more you try and fix someone else's problem, the more likely you are to get kickback because people like to make their own minds up for themselves. So this was the predicament, if you like, that gave rise to motivational interviewing, which I could talk about a little bit more uh, at a later stage. Uh, but I do notice certain commonalities in the foundations that you and I work with, Richmond. So Stephen, why don't you take us a little bit deeper into this? Because, and maybe we can preface it under the guise of sport, you know, most of the, most of my listeners will be coaches at various levels, right from professional sports to, you know, coaching their, their son or their daughter's under 13 team. So I've got a wide range, but for the most part, people are going to be either a coach or, you know, the kind of secondary audience will be uh, middle managers in the, in the workforce. So I think this is going to be super valuable to the whole gamut 
of that. But why don't we kind of preface it with sport and use sporting examples and we can extrapolate out from there. So take us a little bit deeper. Like what are we talking about with motivational interviewing? Well, I think probably a useful observation is that most of what I will be talking about is inside us anyway. So motivational interviewing is not some kind of wonder method that <laughs> nobody knows anything about. Uh, it, most of the mindset, the styles and the skills involved are things that we know about anyway. Mm -hmm. okay? And I think the best metaphor for this is like a guide. So motivational interviewing is built upon the style and skills of a good guide. Okay, so if you imagine going to a travel agent as a guide, that's an example. Um, that person will not tell you what to do and where you must go and when you must go. That person will try and find out from you where you'd like to go, why you want to go there and how you might get there. And so what unfolds in that conversation is something very natural uh, and familiar to us, but forgotten about when we uh, are in the stressful environments in sport education and at home. And the more stressful the environment, the harder it is for parents, teachers, and sports coaches to adopt that stance of a guide. Now, you might say I'm waffling on it, but, but I'll, I'll get to the point, which is that, you know, I want to offer this by way of comfort to Richmond, because you kind of, you talked about, I use motivational interviewing, but sometimes I need to um, give people concrete plans. Well, can I say to you that if you sit in the middle ground in a guiding style, you would have expertise that you want to offer to the person. So it's not a question of, I either let them make all decisions for themselves or I take over and tell them what to do. There's a middle ground space in which you can very skillfully offer very concrete plans to people, but the emphasis is on the word offer and because that gives them the choice about how to integrate and take up the ideas that you have. Yeah. So I just wanted to make that as a starting observation. And so Stephen, would that, would that be the perfect language? You know, again, thinking it through from a coaching perspective, like starting a sentence with, can I offer dot, dot, dot. Absolutely. And I, what I, what I observe in sport is sadly the adoption uh, by coach and by folk involved in trying to, 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 to help a sporting club or team perform well is adopting the, putting a hat on the heads which says, I am the deficit detective and I tell you what to do because I can see what's wrong. And I think most modern under, understandings of what sports coaching are would say that's got an extremely limited shelf life. Yeah, I think that that suggestion that there's something wrong with you that that can be implied in in how this is done is a is is a really common issue, and I think even even the word change, I, I like to qualify with people just on the basis that I'm not saying I need to change who you are, but you might be changing some of the things that you do to get better results or results that are in line with with what you what you want, perhaps. Yeah. Yep. But I love that I love that sort of sense of choice and what you said there about the middle ground and the the offering that really resonates. I think that's a super way to put it. 
I, when I talk about middle grind, perhaps this can be useful. Imagine a continuum where you've got directing and instructing on one side and following on the other. These are communication styles we're well used to. In the middle sits guiding. And what I'm suggesting here is that a skillful coach, parent, teacher will sit in the middle ground quite naturally and move either side as they need to. But in that middle ground, you're championing the autonomy and choice of the individual to make decisions about what they think is in their best interest. But of course, at some point, any sports coach will turn around to say somebody and say, will swing towards a directing style and, and give clear advice, instruction even, or swing to a following style and just listen to people. But motivational interviewing sits in that middle space with a clearly defined set of skills that we've noticed that when you start a conversation about change with someone in their sporting performance, they use a certain kind of positive language about change that you can respond to that predicts better outcome. And so for coaches, Stephen, well, even, even you, Richmond, what have you noticed about even just that language? So let's stay on the idea of language and the power of language. You know, a couple of things that I've already written down that can I offer this piece of advice? And then even what you said there, Stephen, perhaps this can be useful, just things to put in my toolbox. So I think it was Damien Hughes, and you might know Damien uh, Richmond, he has this passage in one of his books about the fact that a doctor, as an example, again, I know, I know I'm completely slaying doctors with what I'm talking about here, but will go through medical school and do no real training on communication, despite the fact that they might, you know, a doctor at a hospital might have to go and deliver the news that uh, either someone's loved one has passed away or some intricate detail around a particular disease or even amongst their team in a surgery, there's a whole communication pattern that exists that they don't have any time to study because they're in the, the tactical details and the technical details of the job itself. And so I, I think about that similarly in coaching in that we don't really spend a lot of time developing those methodologies around language patterns and ways to open up sentences and ways to deliver messages in particular forums. So Stephen, like, is that somewhere that we can all start? Yeah, like I see it as the sort of final frontier to sporting excellence with my bias, but it's, you know, it's free. It doesn't, <laughs> cost, any, it doesn't cost anything to build relationships. And that's the foundation, which is that you establish um, solid, honest, open relationships with the people around you. It costs nothing. And so that's why I call it the final frontier, and it's free. And there's tremendous room for improvement, as there is in healthcare, where there are models of tremendously good practice in healthcare. Most medical schools run communication skills training. Uh, sport, I must say, in, compared to healthcare, lags behind in that it's, it's viewed as a soft skill. Uh, in medicine, too, but there's a certain patronizing tone to the use of that. Of, of that phrase, a soft skill, as if it's not really important or is perhaps peripheral. Um, I think if you look at really skillful coaches, sports coaches, they wouldn't agree with that. They, they would see their job, the primary focus of their job, as building relationships that help individual people to excel. 
and how you build those relationships and how you conduct the conversations is what motivational interviewing focuses on. And I spent three or four, the last three or four years uh, moving around different sporting environments and eventually writing a book on this. Um, for better or worse, the books come out. Um, but I feel it is the final frontier. Well, Richmond, why don't I ask you the same question? You're the one with the, the hands-on experience. How have you found being a practitioner and, and specifically within pain? Because it, it has a certain connotation when it comes with it, but specifically around the communication skills that you need to use and practice to really get at the heart of, of what you're talking about. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I, I totally agree with everything that, that Stephen was just saying there. And, you know, increasingly, I would say there's, there's an interest in, in developing communication skills um, and, and using different models, certainly within the, the physiotherapy world and in the even smaller pain physiotherapy world. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, without, without a relationship, that there's not going to be anything effective happening within that within that room as far as i can see um and and i would say that spreads right across right across health and and it's interesting what Stephen was saying about you know sport perhaps lagging behind because you know certainly when it comes to the thinking about more persistent pain and injuries recurring injuries or ongoing injuries in sport Again, it's still predominantly a very black and white model, sort of looking for the structure or the, the injury to explain the, the pain. Um, and, you know, sport isn't out there as something separate or different. There's not a different biology going on. It's not a different pain. Um, there's a different context. But the same kinds of conversations need to be had. Um, but, but, of course, not everyone's there. Not every, and, and when I say everyone, I'm talking about the, the clients, the patients, the, the people in pain because we've all been brought up in this, this very black and white sort of dualist Cartesian model of thinking about body and mind being separate. And it's, it's a, there's a slow change occurring. Um, and, and, you know, we, we aim to accelerate that with these kinds of conversations. You know, the, the big conversation in general, particularly across the North American sports where they tend to play every second day, you know, hockey, baseball, obviously football has a week off, but, you know, I'm sure you've, you guys have heard of it, this whole talk about uh, load management. And essentially it's managing the, the load of, of a player and, and not putting them through too many games and training sessions because it's stacked towards getting them to the playoffs and getting them through the playoffs and, and winning. But um, you're right, Richmond, that it – we've never had more information at our fingertips in a sporting world, but it's never been so gray in terms of what the players are actually going through. And then you've layered over the top of that millions and billions and trillions of dollars worth of incentive for them to play and for clubs to kind of push players back out into the arena, even though they might be, might be in pain. Um, it's a very kind of cloudy area at the moment. Yeah, I mean, at the essence of all of this, we're talking about human beings. Um, and with all the great technology and, and all the different sort of coaching methods, 
ultimately it boils down to to human beings working together even if it's you know one-on-one like in tennis or, or a team as in football or hockey um and if you skip ahead of that bit then then i just think you're missing you know what what is fundamental um but yet what what has to be as far as i can see the the key to any kind of sustained success and Stephen, i want to revisit with you when you get through this process of motivational interviewing someone opens themselves up to you they can see that you've carved this path for them you've been a great guide you've uncovered some some areas that potentially they they might not have seen also harness some of their strengths but when we come to the outcome, how often is there an element of pain in that? I wanted to merge these two, two ideas together. And so, you know, once you kind of go through this process with them, either from the interviewer or the interviewee, how often is pain kind of just laying there as something that's, that's being found during the process? It's incredibly uh, nuanced question. <laughs> <laughs> and I would not like to try and give you a, a very brief answer. So I'm trying to capture the essence of it. Look, I'm talking to you from a sports club at the moment, okay, from an elite sports club where one of the players here has got an injury, okay, and he is in psychological pain as well as physical pain, okay? Now, <clears throat> you could ask the question in what way could he use this painful experience of uncertainty about his career and life um, in a positive way. And I don't, when I talk with him, see him as, oh, you've got a physical injury and you've got some psychological doubt and uncertainty about your career. These are separate things. It's part of the same person. They're both part of the same person. Mm -hmm. Okay, so is pain necessary? I've got a couple of comments there. One is it can often start with feeling of uncertainty and feeling of being out of control. And to some extent, that can be productive because if you try and talk someone out of that, they, they become defensive. They're very sensitive to how they're spoken to. They will become defensive. And I think if you help them accept that painful uncertainty it can be therapeutic and if you want to go into the, the the sort of deeper dive into motivational interviewing you can you, you your listeners can, can can read about that and talk about that but there's another aspect about the pain thing that that concerns me a little bit which is somehow there's a big difference between what i've said and the way some school teachers and sports coaches view pain like it's a good thing to have pain and therefore it's my job to take them through pain because that will motivate them now i think that is oversimplified and largely dysfunctional what really motivates people are, is the expression of their values and their search for a better life not pain you know of course you can drive people in that sense through painful experience to be motivated but you know that kind of reward is not something that is going to be maintained because the moment you stop giving them painful experiences their motivation is likely to go down okay 
But what does really lift their motivation is feeling connected to other people, feeling free to make decisions, and enjoying their improved competence at the sport or whatever it is they're, they're working on. Um, and those things are not really painful, they're joyous. So uh, you can drive people to be obedient in the face of pain, and their behavior does change, but that's a very narrow model of motivation, and I wouldn't like to endorse that, and I'll be astonished if Richmond would as well. And, and can I add that it, it's not just confined to, to the sporting world. In healthcare, it's a commonly uh, used strategy when you see somebody with a serious lung condition and they're smoking to give them a fearful message. Uh, that fearful message doesn't really predict good outcome. So, you know, I could, I could put my academic research hat on and tell you about, the, you know, a body of research that, that, that clearly indicates that motivational interviewing is effective. And I think the reason for that is because it works with people's own sense of what their values are and what sort of changes they'd like to make. It's not a, it's not a drive to make them obedient to the fearful messages of, of a healthcare practitioner. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally, totally agree with with all of that, that, that um, you know, fear based message or attempting to so-called motivate someone through, you know, fear of their own existence or worry. I, I don't I don't feel is an effective way at all. I'm much more in line with, you know, what, what's important to that person, that, you know, their values and how they want to live their life. You know, do you what's important to you? Well, my grandkids are important to me. Okay, well, how does smoking kind of fit in with that? If you want to spend time with them and be active with them, et cetera, et cetera, rather than show them pictures of a, a diseased lung or heart, that kind of thing, which, you know, is shocking or can be shocking, depending on what they've been exposed to um, before. Um, I think in, in sport, often there's the, the whole, you know, um, no pain, no gain thing. Um, and I, I'm not sure that that is a in itself is a motivator. Um, you know, you're trying to to do something. It might be a certain number of reps, or or to, you know, as you know, I'm into these these ultra ultra runs, and they're definitely painful. But you don't. I'm I, the pain itself. When you get that, that's not a motivator to keep going. It's part of the experience uh, that, that's, that you know is is going to come. The motivator is because it's important to me that, that I complete something, for example, I get to the end of it. Um, so, so no, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that fits right across the board from, from teaching to coaching to healthcare, uh, parenting, all, all of those arenas. Yeah, it's funny. Yesterday I was in a little bit of a tweet discussion around the idea of just this kind of, quote unquote, you know, work harder as coaching advice and in isolation, how I, I think that is the most negligent thing a coach can say to anyone is just in isolation, just work harder. And it, it kind of seems to be a bit of a fend off. If you want to get better, just work harder. And there's no explanation of why or how or when or how that's going to fit in with your values like we're talking about or how it's going to fit in with the team goals. Uh, um, you know, it, again, you see it a lot on, on Twitter just this kind of work harder methodology, but we don't actually go in and educate them around how or why and 
that to me is the essence of coaching, not just shouting, work harder at people. But let me ask you this, Steve, I want to revisit this point because you touched on something there. Uh, How does all this fit into, we kind of live in this ecosystem of negative marketing and the conditioning that, that that does bring to people as we grow up, you know, still to this day, despite everything that we know, we still see the billboards with the, the slim girls and the, like you said, the, the smoking packages with the, the burnt lung. So in terms of getting at people's motivations, are we kind of somehow conditioned almost out of that by the imagery that we see in the ecosystem that we live in? Yeah. And the more, the more stressful the environment people are in, the more others will be shouting messages at them about watch out for this, watch out for that. And so a culture can develop in a sporting club or in a school or in a society uh, where there are images, messages that actually aren't conducive to helping people to grow and change. And um, I'm very struck by the exceptional stories that I've heard about uh, in quality coaches in different sports uh, where, where they've developed a culture in the sporting organization that takes a different approach. And so, you know, it's, it's not a question of giving players the message, you've got to work harder. The person who knows best whether they need to work harder is the athlete themselves. So if you want an athlete to work harder, ask them whether that's something that they feel is going to help them hit the next level. And if they say yes, then fine. Then they work harder. But that's because they've decided they want to work harder. If you see what I mean. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm touching on quite a lot of points here. But yeah, I completely agree. I think to just present people with fearful, threatening messages is not the way to help people change, whether you're a parent, a sports coach, or someone designing billboards. I think, yeah, because we, we live in a society that's full of perceived threats. Already that ties into what you were talking about, you know, stress. And of course, not all stress is bad. And I think that the, the word has, has been really diluted. Mm. Um, but, um, but you know, there's, there's so much that's been going on, or so many examples of this that we can see in society. Um, and, and, and of course, the, the climate and the, the culture and the, the politics all, I think, have a role to play in this. I know this is taking it rather, rather broadly, but I just happened to be looking at some things around trauma and a, and a fairly new piece of work that has been written around that and, and bringing in that, that kind of socio-cultural aspect to it rather than just focusing in on just the experience, looking at the context behind it all. And, uh, and so, you know, we hopefully are starting to see a, a shift in consciousness around this. You could perhaps call it conscious coaching or, or conscious parenting or whatever other people have, would have used those terms, where we're really thinking about, you know, what it is that we're trying to achieve and, and not just doing things because they were done to us or that was the way it was, the way it was done, which was very much fear-based. You know, that's the way, you know, I was, I was brought up um, at, at school and whatnot. It was all, all kind of, and coaching-wise, it was all fear-based. Yeah, and you know, I mean, why do people go into sport? I think it's to enjoy lovely relationships with others, to express themselves, and to face challenge and overcome it. It's a question of 
how we construct a coaching environment so that people enjoy challenge, maybe pushing themselves very hard. But the emphasis that I am sure we all would like is the sense of enjoying relationships and challenging each other and ourselves to do better. And there's some wonderful examples of, of, of coaches that create a culture of that kind. Actually, I was going to ask you, Stephen, if, if you could, could you name any of those coaches who are doing that kind of work as examples? Depends where you live in the world. You know, I would say, um, I would say if you're interested in soccer, um, read and study whatever you can about Jurgen Klopp in Liverpool. Being a Liverpool fan. Yeah. That's very appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've you know, I've, I've met a few of the people that have worked alongside Jurgen Klopp. And clearly, most of the principles that we talk about, he just takes completely for granted. Another example, if we're crossing the Atlantic, um, have a good look at the story of the Chicago Cubs in 2016. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a baseball boy, and I don't know too much about it, but Joe Madden's work with the Chicago Cubs embraces what we're talking about. Okay. And there's a wonderful book called The Cubs Way, that was written about that 2016 experience. And I've spoken to Josh Lifrak, the, the, the psychologist, the chief psychologist in Chicago Cubs. It's a wonderful story that, mm. about creating a culture. Another example is probably, I wish I could remember his name, uh, the coach of Seattle Seahawks. Pete Carroll. Pete yeah. Carroll. From what I come across with Pete Carroll, there's a, similar to Jurgen Klopp, there's a generosity of spirit, which is the starting point of everything that the guy does. Um, so I think there are some superb examples. And why, why do you think that those people have adopted that way? How, how do you think it's emerged in them? Well, you know, they, they're pretty special people. And what frustrates me is that the three of us might think, oh, well, we can't be like that because these are really special people and uniquely talented. Actually, I don't think so. I think what, what they're good at has links in quality parenting and quality teaching and coaching. We can be like that, but we have to start with ourselves and be authentic and genuine ourselves and believe that the building of relationships around us is the foundation. And all the coaches that we've mentioned so far would probably nod their heads and be a bit bored because it's so <laughs> obvious to them, right? But I think that that is the foundation. The question then is how can you help coaches approach that so that it's not we're not mystifying these incredibly talented individuals, which they are, but why not demystify it and deconstruct what it is that they're doing that is so helpful? And I believe we can do that, and I believe that they are using skills in relationship building that are worth tuning into, recording, observing, checking out, and at the risk of sounding immodest, I suspect that those relationship building skills bear a strong resemblance to what Richmond and I would describe as good communication. And the word empathy comes in there. It's a subject we haven't talked about. But the capacity to empathize with others is a fabulous foundation for a sports coach. Yeah. The, point, the point is, however, that understanding what empathy is 
practicing it literally like a sports skill every single day where every conversation can count is something that's well within the reach of any sports coach. Well, let me tie these two ideas together so that we can have a bit of time talking about empathy because I think it's an important one, not just from a coaching perspective, but a societal perspective uh, given the landscape that we're living in right now. But to, to take a step back a little bit, I basically spend my time trying to find out and deconstruct how those coaches that, that you've named and others create sustained success and across the world, you know, what we tend to do is we, we tend to look at them in continental buckets. So you become the best coach in Europe or in North America. We, we tend to bundle the sports together. I'm from Australia. So I look at those sports differently. I've tried to look at from a global perspective, what those similarities are. And one of my original hypotheses was that these were actually people from, for lack of a, better way of putting it outsiders to the sport itself in that they weren't necessarily elite players. But I think the more and more you actually study that, that can fall down. Jürgen Klopp is a perfect example. I think he played about 350 games in the Bundesliga as a player. You know, he's kind of wrapped up in the, in football itself but so I don't think there's necessarily a, a direct link, which also kind of plays into what you were talking about there, Stephen, in that we, we can study them, we can deconstruct all these different ideas and all these different backgrounds and all these different parenting styles and, and it can all fit in. And I think we should try to stay away from just thinking there's a linear way to get to coaching. It's not just teachers. It's not just people that were parented well. It's not just people from outside. It's not just people that weren't the greatest player. It's all of them and the greatest players as well. But yeah, part of that is just this idea of empathizing and the fact that someone from outside of the pro sports world can walk into a locker room and coach that environment well. So maybe we can start with, with this in terms of empathy, listening Let's start with you, Richmond. Listening must be such an incredible part of your job and and not listening to respond necessarily, but listening to listen and take in and observe and reflect with that person. Absolutely, yeah. Um, You know, being being as present as you can. And and I would reverse um, a little bit further and something that Stephen mentioned before, you know, the about the self, that having an insight into you, the person, the, the authentic you, and that, that takes work. And it's interesting because Carol and, and Michael Gervais, have, have, you know, they've obviously teamed up and, and talk about this as well, um, you know, bringing in things like mindful practice. But I'm talking about for, for me as the clinician, the therapist, the, the coach, the guide, you know, all of the encourager, all of those roles, because unless I have insight in an insights really about me and that other person that's in the room and what's going on. And you have to be, you have to hold yourself very, very present to do that. And that, that takes practice because we're very good at jump. Physios in particular, but this has been measured even, I can't give you the numbers, but, but physios, we're extremely good at jumping in before that person's even completed their answer. So sitting back and, and just listening to every word they say, but not only the word, the word that they're saying, but how are they saying it? What's going on in their face? What's going on in their body? 
And you can only do that by being totally present. And I think that people believe there, if you're doing that, then you're not going to be able to come up with what to say next. But I would argue completely opposite, that it just becomes a very natural conversation where you're both completely in the room. And again, that's not just in the, that environment. That's, that's with your kids or, or with your partner or with friends or someone you're chatting to in the street. When you give your full presence, there's some inherent knowing there that goes on with that other person. They know that you're fully there for them. And that, I think, is, is the absolute basis for that relationship blooming. Um, and that person going away going, wow, God, I felt really listened to there. Uh, and I think that the empathy comes across and we've all got very different backgrounds and, and different reasons for going into what we're doing. We've suffered in different ways as, as individuals, as being human and being alive. And I think we bring all of that to the party. And obviously we need to be skillful in making sure that we don't take on too much. So there's, there's definitely a line there, but that's probably another conversation. <laughs> and Stephen, give us your take on empathic listening. I know this is obviously a huge part of, of what you do and what you teach. And I've heard you speak about it before, but this is really a, a core piece of the puzzle here. Yeah. What I, what I would add here is that in complete agreement with, you know, with, with, with what's just been said, is that empathic listening can be used purposefully and integrated into everyday coaching challenges like giving feedback, connecting in relationship building, and indeed tackling problem behavior. So what motivational interviewing offers is that foundational skill of empathic listening being used in a strategic, purposeful manner. So before I describe what that involves, it's probably a good idea to clarify what we mean by empathic listening. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you'd mind, because it's commonly, um, empathy is commonly taken to mean the ability to be present and to stand in someone else's shoes. And what we've realized and uncovered in working in motivational interviewing is that um, it's actually a two-stage process. There is that initial foundational standing in someone else's shoes. It's an experience that you have, which the other person senses. But what we've discovered is if you convey your understanding of that experience to the person, if you say to them what it is you understand about their experience, you build a bridge between the two of you. And we call that empathic listening, not just the internal experience of empathy, but the conveying of it in the form of a statement, not a question. What happens if I don't understand? This seems to be a, a missing piece. So my, my, my natural reaction would be to go the vulnerable route and say, look, I think I understand, but let's be honest, I actually have no idea what it would be like to experience that or experience that in this particular context. So well, how, do I, I, how, I, yeah, how do I overcome completely. that? Completely. I completely agree with you. If you don't understand, ask the person. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they'll try and explain to you uh, more clearly what it's like. So there's mm -hmm. no, I, I'm not suggesting you don't ask questions of people. I'm just saying it, empathic listening involves an effort, a curious effort 
to say what you understand by what they say. And if you've got it wrong, in the natural course of a conversation, people will put you right, as long as they feel you've been genuine uh, and sincere. They will naturally put you right. Yeah, now, perfect. What what we um, formulated in in this application of motivational interviewing for sports coaches are a number of everyday scenarios where listening, empathic listening, is at the heart of effective practice. And I I could give you some examples if you like. Please do. Uh, giving feedback to somebody about a technical matter. You can do this, if you like, one of two ways. You can dump the information and feedback on them and take a look and see whether they take it on board. Or you could do it, what we would argue, to be more skillfully by using a simple framework in which you first elicit their understanding of what's going on with this technical matter for them. So you're asking and listening first. Then you give them your suggestions, your observations. And then finally, you listen to uh, their understanding of the relevance of the information. In other words, you listen and elicit what this information means to them. Mm -hmm. And what we, what we found in healthcare is that produces better outcomes. Mm -hmm. Another very practical application of listening is simply with relationship building. In everyday conversations with people. Our ability to say to people, what we imagine they are experiencing is a very powerful moment and can happen on the side of a field even during a game, yeah. let, alone in a let alone in a corridor. And then I would, so, you know, empathy is the foundation for relationship building. It's a skill, what I've described is a skill that's measurable and it's, it's, I can promise you it's associated with better outcome in healthcare and, and mental health. Across all forms of treatment, the one feature that seems to cut across different approaches to, to treatment, psychological treatment, is this capacity to build a relationship and use empathy in this practical way. So there's no reason why it can't cross over into sport, and I've seen wonderful examples of that. But then, thirdly, I would say, and this is where motivational interviewing was born, is empathic listening can be used to tackle behavior problems. So, for example, an athlete repeatedly comes late for practice. You could just tell him, look, you're late for practice, it's unacceptable, just make sure you're not late again. That's a typical, that's one approach. It's less effective, it's less effective than using listening to first of all understand why the person's late for practice, using listening in response to a question like, what do you think you might do to improve matters? And using listening to, to follow the solutions that they come up with. And that, that in one sentence was motivational interviewing. Because if they come up with a solution to being late for practice, it will predict better outcome than if you do. But in, in all the practical examples I've given, uh, empathic listening is a practical skill is central. Can I motivationally interview myself? Yeah, I've got a buddy who wrote a book on it, actually. What's his name? Alan Zakoff. Z-U-C-K-O-F-F. Hmm. I think that's... Um, 
that's a key point actually we we've spoken predominantly about how we might speak to other people but actually the person we speak to the most is is of course ourselves and that that dialogue uh, you know creates a sense of our reality um Thich Nhan speaks about this in in his book on communication and that was really the first time i really started to think about that in in any great great detail um because of course if we're telling ourselves some story some narrative about ourselves and our history and, and possible future um that that's embodied and that will inform how i then behave or how i then literally see the world um and certainly when it comes to, to then dealing with other people yeah and hence why i asked the question is it's something that i have been asking more and more of coaches is how you coach yourself I think it's really telling. I think it's something that we don't tend to talk about a lot in coaching because it's always about them, particularly uh, sorry, team-based sports coaches. You kind of have this parenthood outlook on it and you apply everything to them. But really the important thing is, like you were just talking about there, Richmond, is like how you coach yourself, the language you use with yourself, the your own ability to navigate challenges and and question what's going on and reflect and change. And yeah, I think it's something interesting that potentially doesn't get enough airtime. So I've just been trying to ask different coaches in the business world, in the sports world, across all different disciplines and just see what the response is. Uh, we're short on time here a little bit, fellas. So let me ask you this, the traditional ending question of where others won't, what are you intellectually stimulated by outside of your work at the moment? So Stephen, let's start with you. Have you watched a Netflix show recently? Have you gone down a Wikipedia wormhole? Like what's, what's something completely out of your realm that has struck you recently? Oh man, what a, what a crazy question. I guess what immediately comes to mind are two things. One's lovely, the other's disturbing. The lovely thing is I'm like, I'm like into forestry management and cutting down trees, right? So I'm obsessed with like different species of trees and how you cut them down. That is totally boring for people. <laughs> the other thing that um, I'm quite involved with is understanding what happened in Germany between the two wars. And there are a number of, of shows on Netflix and things like that that highlight what happened between the two wars in Germany because it has strong echoes of what's happening in the United States and Europe at the moment. And uh, so, yeah, so the one's very serious and the other one's more playful. See, this is why I asked this question is because people come up with stuff like how to cut down trees, which I would never have thought of. What, give us, what's the Coles notes? What, how, what's different? About what, man? Cutting down trees. Yeah. Oh man. I don't know. I don't know where to begin. Like, okay. We're going to have to, we have to talk offline about this. You're going to, I'm, I'm actually interested in this. I'm you've serious. got to observe. You've got to observe that tree very carefully before you cut it down. Right. And it's the same in a conversation. You want to be observing the effect of what you might say before you say it. Okay. And you want to think about the effect of cutting a tree down and where it's going to fall before you cut it. 
So there's the uh, link, game. Okay. I'm actually going to go and look into that. Richmond, what about you? What, what wormhole are you down at the moment? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not chopping any trees down. I think that would scare the life out of me. But um, so, well, running's my thing. Um, and I spend a lot of time, there's some great shows on, on particularly ultras on, on Amazon Prime. Um, and that, that sort of drifted me towards having an interest in, in veganism, which, you know, I've, I've recently adopted that kind of diet, which has been fascinating, both from an experiential viewpoint, but also seeing how people react to that um, on, online in particular. Um, and uh, the, the, neg- the, negative, the negative response that you get. Um, so that they're my sort of two two areas of, of exploration, both re- in reading and watching, but also doing. Uh, we'll stay with you, Richmond. Where can people find you? Either contact you, or read more about you, or uh, get in touch around what you've got going on. Yes. So uh, I've got two two hats. I've got the um, specialistpainphysio.com, which is more of the clinical site. Uh, my my clinics. Um, and there's a blog on there that people can read. I've then got the social enterprise understand pain, which is understandpain.com. And we're just starting a, a big project, um, around pain and osteoarthritis and pain coaching and information about that's on the website. Uh, I've got a Twitter handle at pain physio and Instagram is pain coach and a Facebook page specialist pain physio. So there'd be the ways to, to get in touch. I'm always happy to, to chat to people and communicate with people. So feel free to get in touch. And the fallback is your name is Richmond Stace, so you're fairly easily Googleable. Yes. There's not too many of those. Much like Cody Royal. Mr. Rolnick, where can people find you? Oh, my word. You'll find me in a forest cutting down trees, man. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, I don't really go on Twitter I don't go on Facebook. Um, the best way to get a hold of me is with my name, which is R-O-L-L-N-I-C-K, Stephen Rolnick. And I have got a website. And that website is managed by good people who try and look after me. And you can contact me through that. And there's a ton of information there on everything we've talked about today and, and Richmond as well. Uh, for anyone listening, his blog just has a wealth of information on all the things we've been talking about. Gentlemen, amazing. Thank you so much for this. I know it was a little bit left field topic today, but thanks for indulging me. And um, yeah, hopefully next time we can get together and have a whiskey in the cricket club with you, Stephen. Anytime, my man. Right. Thanks, Cody. It's been, that's been brilliant. Cheers, Stephen.